Man, I am so glad that we are able to connect today. Whether you are live at a Life Church campus or you are joining us online, I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. I want to welcome you today and say thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to worship with us and to uh, open God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I'm going to walk through this entire book today. Now, I'm not going to read every verse and explain everything, but I'm going to go over this entire chapter today as we're in this series called Providence, how God's will works, how God orchestrates and designs things, and how he works in concert with you and with I. Because we're not rock'em, sock'em robots. God doesn't control us from some heavenly joystick. And, and instead, you and I are free moral agents. We have the ability to choose God's will or our will. We can make our will God's will, but, but, the, but the truth of the matter is it's our choice. And so today we're going to look at the extravagant love that God has and the grace that God has for every single person, all of us, every believer, but also how God will also keep his promises intact to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. And so in the Old Testament, God began a covenant with Abraham and told him he would make him the father of a great nation, that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea. And so God did exactly that and has done exactly that. And we know that covenant that God made with Abraham to be the nation of Israel today, the Jewish people. And so God has a special relationship with them. But what we also see that when Jesus Christ comes, Jewish, he comes and he, he's the Messiah, although the Jewish people and the nation of Israel rejected him, and, and the Bible says in the Old Testament that that would happen, they rejected him, he still came for them. But not just for them, but for all of us, Gentiles, those of us who are non-Jewish people, which is probably most of you that are watching me today. And so Paul, when he has a, has a relationship with Jesus Christ, when he has this road to Damascus experience where literally he's on his way to Damascus to, to yet again persecute the church, and then God kind of knocks him off the horse, speaks to him. Paul has this amazing conversion experience. Paul's uh, ministry is to the Gentiles. And although Paul, as he would describe himself, is a Hebrew of the Hebrew, he's of the nation of Israel, but his ministry is to the Gentiles. Therefore, he's writing this, this, this book to the, to the church in Rome. And so he is speaking to Gentile believers and telling them how God's plan works for them, how God's extravagant love and grace works for them. But God has not yet still forgotten the nation of Israel. So there's, there's kind of two tracks today, kind of like last week. There's this prophetic historical track that, that, that Paul will talk about with the nation of Israel. But then there's real life 21st century today application. And so today may feel a bit like a Bible study, but I think you're really going to get the application as we go along. So because we're talking about three different theological kind of concepts here. The first is the remnant. The second is restoration. And the third is redemption. So let me kind of explain and walk you through. So if you're taking notes, the first thing you're going to see is the principle of the remnant. The principle of the remnant. Uh, so Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1, I'm reading this in the NIV, the New International Version. It says it this way. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. Paul speaking here. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham and from the tribe of Benjamin. 
God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and have torn down your altars and I'm the only one left and they are trying to kill me. What and, and what was God's answer to him? I have reserved myself 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Now let me explain this principle of the remnant. The illustration that, that Paul gives us here is Elijah in the Old Testament against the prophets of Baal. So the prophets of Baal were, Baal was a false god and, and, and they were growing and this, this false religion was growing and it was encroaching even on in, in, into uh, Israeli life and, and, and there were people that were kind of getting sucked into this false religion and, and, and it, it eventually will wind up where Elijah will call down fire from heaven and will basically, God, God will demonstrate himself that he is God and that the prophets of Baal are false. But there's this whole thing that's happening with this, this, these prophets of Baal, this false prof, these false prophets, this false religion. And, and Elijah feels like he's the only one. You ever felt like that? Like you're the only one. God, I'm the only one serving you at my work. I'm the only one that lives for you at my high school. I'm the only one at my college university that serves you. I'm the only one in my neighborhood that's a true Christ follower. I'm the only one in my family. I'm the only one. Here I am. And it's almost, it's kind of pathetic in one, in one aspect. But the other part of it is, it's really true. Because if you really are honest, if you're following Jesus, especially with a robust, active uh, Christ followership, you may feel from time to time like you're the only one out here that's actually living for Jesus or the whole, a whole world is kind of going to hell in a handbasket. Like everybody's getting sucked into this false religion. Everybody's getting sucked into this pluralistic secular mindset that we live in in our world. And, 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 and America is just going this way and this way. And we're the only ones and I'm the only one. And God speaks directly to Elijah. And his response is this. I have reserved 7,000 who have not yet bowed to Baal. I have reserved, God said. Reserved is a word that we would see to be to set aside. It's like you walk into a restaurant and, and they, they're seating people at tables, but you see this one primo table in the corner that says reserved. And you wonder who's sitting there and who, who called ahead and who will that be? It's been set aside. Yeah, there's other places, there's other things that are going on, but this is special. This is set aside. God says for himself, he has reserved, he has set aside these people. 7,000. Elijah, you're not alone. I have a remnant. I have reserved for myself. I have set aside for myself. I have set apart for myself this group of people that love me, that passionately follow me, and they're not following the whims and the ways of this world. They're not following the false religion of Baal, but they have their eyes fixed upon me. Can I tell you you may feel like sometimes in your following Jesus that you're all alone. You may feel like nobody on your block is a Christ follower. You may feel like nobody at your company or nobody at your school. You're the only one, but you're not. 
God is always has a remnant. That's the principle of the remnant. God always has a people. He will always have a people. It doesn't matter how bad things get. It doesn't matter how, how much the enemy looks like he's going to win. It doesn't look like, it doesn't matter how much it feels like the, maybe a false religion is pulling people. God always has his people. You're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone today. You're not going to be alone tomorrow. Because ne- why? Because he will never leave you nor forsake you. He always has a group of people. And if he did not reject Israel, God will not reject you. Why? Because of grace. Paul says this isn't because of works. This isn't because of how good you are or how great you are or how smart you are. This is because of grace. Undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God. That's what grace is. Undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God. God always has a group. He always has a remnant. Second statement, the promise of restoration. The promise of restoration. If you're writing notes, just write that down. The promise of restoration. Let's go now to verse 11 through verse 15. Then we're going to pick up at verse 25. Verse 11, again, I ask, did they stumble so to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater the riches will be their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles in as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arise my own people, the Israelites, Uh, the Jews, my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Restoration. Now, there's, there's two aspects of restoration here. First, he's speaking of the restoration of Israel. He, he, he's talking about, hey, did they, the nation of Israel, did they stumble and fall beyond recovery? Like, are they so far gone that God can't bring them in? He says, not at all. Uh, but their transgression, they're doing the opposite, not obeying God's word, not accepting Jesus as the Messiah, has brought, um, has basically has brought salvation to the Gentiles. Now, remember, Paul's ministry is to the Gentiles, but he has a passion in the heart for the Jews because he is one. I don't even know if that's grammatically correct, but you understand what I just said. Because Paul is a Jew, he has a passion. And, and theologically, and according to the covenant that God made with Abraham, there is a restoration that's coming to Israel. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love the Gentiles But the Gentiles become benefactors because of the fact that Israel has rejected. God makes a way for the Gentiles so that we can all call on the name of Jesus and we can all be saved. Now, Dr. Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll says it like this. He says, having identified the true Israel as a faithful remnant instead of the rebellious majority, Paul establishes a second helpful distinction. Discipline versus punishment. When we're talking about how God deals with Israel and God deals with their rejection, their transgression, their sin against him by not following Jesus, by not accepting Jesus, 
There is a discipline, but not a punishment. Let me read on. The difference is subtle yet profound in the Bible. Punishment is a matter of justice in which a person must suffer the consequences of sin, eternal separation from God and torment. That is permanent, punitive, and and retributive. But discipline, on the other hand, is a matter of sanctification in which all things, both good and bad, are utilized by God to develop a person's own character. It's usually temporary and always constructive. This is what we see with the nation of Israel as they, in the book of Exodus, as they leave Egypt and they're on the way to the promised land. And as they get into the the desert, on their way into the promised land, they send spies into the land and the spies come back and the overwhelming majority said, there's no way we can do that. I don't care what God says. They're just too great, too powerful. And people go, oh, we can't do this. We can't do this. And so God allows and, and instructs Moses to lead the nation of Israel for 40 years in the desert. Is it punitive? No, meaning it's not permanent. They're going to get to the promised land because why? Because God said that they would. But what does God need to do? He needs to discipline his people. So for 40 years, they're walking in one giant circle in the desert until they come to the end of themselves, until they lay down their pride, until they choose to trust God, until an entire generation dies off in essence. And then they go and possess the land. This is how Paul is likening the transgression of the rejection of the Messiah in Jesus Christ from the nation of Israel. In this season, while they've rejected him, while they've rejected Jesus, there is a transgression that Israel as a a nation has made. And so God will discipline them and, and the discipline will be he will take his attention. And it's not that he has lifted his hand off of them, but yet he will open the door for the Gentiles. So he will bring restoration, as he said he would, to the nation of Israel. But he will now also open this up for the restoration for the souls of the Gentiles. So Chuck Swindoll, Dr. Swindoll goes on to say, on one hand, there is no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. Some individuals are sovereignly chosen by God's grace. Others are hardened in their sin. The blessings of salvation are the same for both, as are the curses of damnation. Ethnicity has nothing to do with the eternal destiny of an individual, for God is impartial. On the other hand, that the Lord has special plans for the collective identity of the Jews, for they play a crucial role in the final chapters of the earth's history. Therefore, they receive a unique attention from the Lord as his people. At the present time, the whole uh, Hebrew nation is under discipline, including the elect and the lost Jews. So, Paul then in verses 16 through 23, which I kind of skipped from 15 to 1 to 25, he gives the, the analogy of the branch and the root. Now, I don't have time to go into all of this. There's some fascinating stuff and some scholarship on this. But the essence is basically this, is that he is speaking again to Gentiles, having a heart for the Jews, Paul is. And he says, Israel is the root. Don't ever forget this, that they are the root, that the reason why God has a redemptive plan, uh, it, it goes all the way back to what he cares for his people. And so Israel's the root, but the Gentiles are the branches. He uses the word grafted. We've been grafted into the vine. We've been grafted into this tree. So we Gentiles don't have restoration without Israel. So we are able to be restored in right relationship with God because ultimately God will will, will keep his covenant, his promise and restore Israel into right relationship. 
But currently, Paul says, in this particular time, and this would be true even to today, that, that the nation of Israel as a whole has still rejected who Jesus is. They still, they're still looking for the Messiah. But we, as Christ followers, believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Therefore, we have been restored. And so the truth of the matter is we Gentiles are grafted into the tree. We've been adopted into God's family. So when you hear that phrase grafted into the vine or grafted into the tree, there's a whole process in which that happens that a horticulturalist could tell you about that or an arborist could explain some of that to you. But, but, but for the sake of time, the essence is you and I have now been adopted into the family of God. You and I now are a part of the family of God. Why is that so important? Here's the reason why it's important. Because of Israel's rejection, God still has a plan for restoration for them. It's under discipline and not under punishment much like they were walking around in the desert for 40 years. It has opened a way for you and I now to be a part, to be, to be grafted in, to be adopted into the family of God. So because we do, when we call on the name of the Lord, we are saved, all of us. Because of that, what happens is all the promises in the Bible are ours. Old Testament, Old Testament, now the promises that God gave Abraham and Isaac and Jacob for the nation of Israel become promises that we can stand upon. They become promises that we know. They're, they're, they're words that God speaks to us because we have now become part of that family. We've become part of the family. So the New Testament, yes, the New Testament is what we as Gentile believers and Jewish believers and Jesus Christ all accept. But the New Testament is what the nation of Israel as a whole has rejected. So yeah, we already know we get the benefit of everything from Matthew all the way to Revelation. But because of what Paul's saying here, because of Israel's transgression, because of, of their delayed acceptance of who the Messiah is, we have an opportunity now as Gentiles. We have an opportunity to be able to be restored in the right relationship with God. And not just that, but because we're grafted into the vine, because we're part of the family, because we're adopted, we have the inheritance. We have the blessing. We have the promises. We have the provisions that God spoke in the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all all the way to through to the end of the end of Revelation. That's amazing. And that's what Paul is saying is, hey, 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 don't forget all these promises, all of these stories, all these historical accounts where God showed up and he provided. When he speaks of Israel, he's speaking of you because you've accepted his one and only son. And because you've accepted his one and only son, you are saved. You've now been grafted into the vine. You are now a part of the family of God. So we've talked about remnant. God always has a remnant. God always has a people that's reserved for him. God always leads in restoration. Even in Israel today, even though they have still rejected him, they're still his people. It's like that of a prodigal. That prodigal son, remember the parable, the story with meaning that Jesus gives of the prodigal son where the, the, the father has two sons and one stays and the other one says, hey, I want my inheritance and I want to leave and I want to go. And the father, his heart breaks for his son who is running, who's rejected, who's rejected him and the family and is going and squandering his wealth and squandering his inheritance. And, 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 and it's that God in that, in that parable, that story with meaning, the father is God. And the son is Israel. That's one of the meanings of that. God still loves his son. God still cares for his son. 
The Bible says even when, when the prodigal came home, when, that the father was going as far as his, as his property would allow him to go. And when his prodigal son was yet a long way off, the father saw him. Why? Because the father was always looking because that's the heart of the father. So God has a restorative heart for Israel. But because of their rejection, you and I have an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And because of that, all the promises of the book are ours. So remnant and restoration, it leads to this last thing, the praise of the redeemed. The praise of the redeemed. It's, 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 the, it's the theology of redemption. Now remember at the beginning of chapter 11, Paul gives himself a Jew as an example of the journey that Israel take, will take to come home to God, like the prodigal child coming home to the, to the awaiting father. I want to read this again for you. Verse 1, Paul says, I asked then, did God reject his people? Paul responds, by no means. I, Paul, am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul then, throughout this entire chapter, walks us as a reader through the rejection, the restoration, and the remnant of Israel. The, the, the journey for Paul erupts at the end of this chapter in a doxology of praise, as it will one day be that for Israel when they come home. I want you to catch that. This whole journey of there's a remnant. God has a remnant. He always has a reserved people set apart for himself. There's always restoration. God's not trying to, 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 to be punitive. It's, it, it's, it's not a final. It's, it's, it's discipline. It's that heart of the father. It's, it's the heart of the, of the father of the prodigal child who the child rejected and left, but yet the father still awaits and the father still looks. And I want you to catch this. This is Paul. That's why Paul is likening himself to his reader. He's saying, I am just like Israel. I was rejecting of God and I persecuted the church and I rejected Jesus until one day, until one day God showed up. And when God showed up and my eyes were open and my heart was open and I had that road to Damascus experience, it was on that day, on that journey that God changed me. And just as he changed me, just as he redeemed me, just as he restored me, just as I became a part of his remnant, so will one day Israel be. And when they do, they will sing in this praise of the redeemed. Look at it in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom, and the knowledge of God, Paul says. How unsearchable his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For through him, or excuse me, from him, and through him, and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's this praise. I just want to walk through this for a minute. In verse 33, that word depth, it's, it's powerful. It, it's, it's, it's what the, the writer, and again, this is one of the things I love about the Greek language. It's word pictures. It's, it's the powerful and profound sea, the ocean. Its depths are dark and mysterious. It's defined to know its secrets. There's no way. Even today, we talk about one of the greatest frontiers on our planet Earth, 2,000 years after Paul wrote this, is the ocean. It's so deep and so vast and so wide and so mysterious and so dark yet so powerful. That's how Paul describes the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
That word riches means to flow, to spill over a good thing, something that's overflowing. It could be physical, it can be spiritual, it can be moral. It's all three because we're talking about God. The wisdom and knowledge represents a sum total of all that there is to think, all of the collective wisdom of this world beyond human intellect. They speak of God's knowledge to know all things and his ability to, perfect, to perfectly order all events at the same time unsearchable. He says that, that these things are unsearchable. Uh, it's, the root word means to track. It's the sense of hunting down a, 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 an animal by following its trail, that the Lord's judgment cannot be traced through human logic for its ability is beyond the ability to comprehend. A.W. Tozer, the great theologian, said it this way, to say that God is infinite is to say that he is measurelessness, or excuse me, he is measureless. Measurement is the way created things have of accumulating for, or excuse me, accounting for themselves. I'm getting too excited. Let me, let me slow down here. It describes limitations, imperfections, and cannot apply to God. For weight describes the gravitational pull of the earth upon material bodies. Distance describes the intervals between bodies in space. Length means extension uh, in space. There are other familiar measurements such as those for liquid and for energy and sound and light and numbers and plurality. We also try to measure abstract qualities and speak of great or little faith or high or lower intelligence or large or meager talents. It, it, is it not plain that all of this does not and cannot apply to God? In the same way, is it, it is the same way that we see the works of his hands, but not the way we see him. He is above all things, outside of it, beyond it. Our concepts of measurement embrace mountains and men, atoms and stars, gravity and energy, numbers, speed, but never God. Nothing in God is less or more or large or small for he is what he is in himself without qualifying thought or word for he is simply God. Woo! If that doesn't, man, that doesn't stir your bowl, uh, your spoons don't fill out your bowl. I'm just telling you. Uh, he, Paul says, hey, I've exhausted all thought and, 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 and having all considered all rational explanation on the topic of God's plan for the Jews. But he ends it. He ends it with this. He says, and, and from him, which means God is a source of all that exists. And through him, for God sustains all things and everything that has purpose and movement. And to him, for God is a purpose in which all things exist. Wow. This is what we experience when we who are lost are now found. We who were blind now see. We who were lame now walk. When Jesus came in to my life and set me free from the law of sin and death, I have this song, this praise of the redeemed. It's a song that the Bible says that the angels cannot sing because they don't know what it was, be, what it was like to be lost in their dead and, and dead in their sin and their transgressions. They don't know what it was like to be completely uh, trapped in, 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 in this world and in this flesh. But Paul says, hey, we understand this. We know this. And one day Israel will experience this the same way the Gentiles have. And, and, and so, and in all things, verse 36, let's go back to that really quick. In all things, he says, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory and glory forever and ever. Amen. Those all things include your current situation. 
They include what you cannot figure out. They include the loss of your employment. They include your promotion. That includes a blessing of your family. That includes the loss of your precious loved one. That includes a bewildering test that you're going through right now that you don't know why you're going through it, but God does. It includes whatever situation that you may be in right now, regardless of how painful or how pleasant it, it may be. It's all things. Regardless of what you are facing in all things, God always has a remnant. You're never alone. It, regardless of what you're facing in all things, God always restores. Even the prodigal, whether it's a nation of Israel or it's you and me who've rejected him, he restores us. And regardless of what we're facing in all things, God always redeems. That's his nature. That's his essence. That's who he is. Even in the worst of situations, he brings triumph out of our tragedy. He brings joy out of our sorrow. He brings light from our darkness. That's why Paul is so excited. This doxology of praise, it's the, it's, it's the expression of how vast and how great and how powerful God is. So I just wanna tell you today, I don't know what you're facing, but I know this, the God that you serve and the God that I serve or the God that you could serve is above all things, is bigger than all things and holds all things. Whatever you may be facing today, I wanna to pray for you. Whatever your need that's going on in your world, whatever's perplexing your mind right now, what, 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 whatever's tearing away at your soul, whatever the enemy's trying to use to condemn you or to bring you down, I'm just letting you know that God has all things. Nothing's bigger than God. Nothing's bigger than God. Whether it's the covenant that he keeps with the nation of Israel that one day they will come home, just as the prodigal son came home to the father, or it's you or me, or a lost loved one, or friend, or family member, whatever it is, God has it. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your master plan. I thank you, God, that you always have a remnant, and that we're never alone. We're not just out here serving you by ourselves. No, no, no. You've always had a group of people, and you will always have a people that are reserved. God, I thank you that you restore us. You're not trying to destroy us. You're not trying to, 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 to reduce us, but you restore us. And God, thank you for redemption. Lord, I am so unworthy of your grace, your unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor in my life. Thank you for saving me and a wretch like me, a sinner like me. Someone who even has experienced your grace, but yet, Lord, there are times I do what I don't want to do and I sin and I fight this flesh, but your grace is still sufficient. God, your goodness is still new. Your mercies are still new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness, oh God. So, Lord, today I just thank you that you have all things. Everything going on in our world, everything going on in our, in our, in our homes, everything going on in our businesses, you have all things. You are bigger than all things. Lord, we just give you all things today and we thank you. Thank you that we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen.